Would you turn your Bibles then to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we pick up our studies in this epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 4. There's a lot of threads in this uh, little section, and I'm going to try and pull them out. I hope it makes sense to you, but uh, a lot of thoughts are kind of intertwined and weaved together, so hopefully we'll uh, be able to dissect the text and pull out those threads in a way that's helpful to you. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And we know that God always blesses the reading uh, of His Word. So we're picking up uh, our studies in this uh, epistle. You will remember in our first study, by way of introduction, we said that Paul had established this church around A.D. 50 on a second missionary journey. You can read all about that in Acts 18. It was a church that excited him and exasperated him, a church that was dynamic and at the same time chaotic, a, a church that was wonderfully gifted but desperately immature. And Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to deal with certain problems that were reported to him and to answer certain questions that were asked of him. He had heard a report about the wickedness that had characterized, that did characterize the city of Corinth, had infiltrated the life of the church, and there was a toleration, an unacceptable toleration of sin among the members. It also received correspondence from the church asking about certain thorny theological and practical issues that had perplexed them. So, the letter has a dual purpose of both rebuking them and instructing them in the things of God. Now, it's interesting to notice that before Paul deals with any of the issues that need to be addressed, he begins with praise. Look at verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, some commentators think this is a kind of psychological device that Paul is using uh, to encourage them before he rebukes them, to highlight their virtues before he deals with their vices. Uh, the advice that's given to teachers who are training for a life and education, two stars and a wish that you congratulate them and highlight two positive things, but then you uh, highlight one thing that they could do better. But I just want you to notice that Paul is not praising the Corinthians for their faith, but praising God for His grace. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in Christ Jesus. He reminds them that they are what they are by the grace of God. I hope every Christian understands what grace is, but for fear of that somebody might in spite of my repeated repetition, might not yet grasp what grace is. Grace is the undeserved kindness of God. 
So imagine you went down to Curry's and uh, in a moment of weakness, you pocketed a mobile phone and you're stopped by a burly security guard on the way out and he demands that you empty your pockets and you protest and say no and uh, it's my phone and he says we've caught it all on CCTV and you're guilty and he calls the store manager and the store manager reaches for the phone and phones the police that would be justice you're getting what you deserve if he said well you know you're young and maybe still at school I don't want anything going on your record Uh, give me back the phone and on you go that would be mercy but in the highly unlikely situation that he might say to you take the phone with you that's grace grace is getting what you don't deserve and salvation as bb warfield says is a pure gratuity from god it's grace it's all of grace our salvation from beginning to end is all of grace do we deserve it did we earn it can we merit it not at all it's all of god's grace uh, towards us that's the source of our salvation So I want you to notice three things because all that Paul says in this section stems from that whole doctrine of grace, that concept of grace. So first of all, notice with me the grace received. In these verses, Paul lists three great blessings of grace. First of all, he says that God deals with our past. God deals with our past. Look at verse 4 again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, not as the authorized version says that is given, but as the ESV says, for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. It's the aorist tense. It's the past tense. It's the passive voice. In other words, this is something that has happened to us in the past, and it's something that we did not cooperate with or simply respond to. It's a a unilateral intervention from God. God's grace broke into the Corinthians' lives and changed them, and changed them. He says there in verse 6, our testimony uh, about Christ was confirmed in you, that, that Paul came preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Uh, he preached the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace broke into the lives of the Corinthians, and they responded in repentance and faith. Now, I want you to think of these, um, these Corinthians for a moment. Here they are in this center of wickedness, a a city that was so notorious for its wickedness that the noun Corinthian was used in general Greek language for a prostitute, and the verb Corinthianize was used for engaging in immorality. But into that center of wickedness, Paul came preaching Christ, and lies were touched, grace broke forth, and lies were transformed by the power of the gospel. You see, grace is not simply the unmerited favor of God. It's the demerited favor of God. And you remember that uh, definition of the Corinthians that was given to us in chapter 6, 
where he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. This is what they were like. This is the lifestyle that they embraced and the lifestyle that they promoted. But grace broke in, grace changed them, and they were brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace deals with the past. Grace deals with the, the present. Notice there in verse 5, he says that in every way you were enriched in him. I remember he's still speaking about grace, that the grace of God enriched them, enriched them, equipped them, gave them all that they needed to live for Christ in that wicked and immoral city. Notice how they were enriched. Look at verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. The word speech there is not a good translation. It's the word logos. From, which is translated normally as word. Uh, and so he says, in word and knowledge, you were thoroughly equipped. It may be that Paul is hinting at a heresy that was beginning to uh, emerge in the early church, where you could be lifted out of the, the plane of the ordinary and mundane kind of Christian life to a higher plane through a, a word and through a special revelation of knowledge that you could enter into a, a super league of Christianity. And that heresy would take root in the church, and it was known as Gnosticism. And the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. And Paul is saying, look, he's, he's given you everything you need to live the Christian life. He has given you uh, the word He's given you knowledge, all the knowledge that you uh, need to live for Christ in Corinth has been deposited with you. There were some in the church that were, well, it was really the forerunner of the second blessing movement, that, that through some extra experience of the Spirit that you could be lifted into a, a higher plane. And Paul says, no, he, he says, in His grace He has given you. It's the same truth that Paul opens the letter to the Ephesians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you have received every spiritual blessing, why do you need a second blessing? If every blessing is already given to you and deposited in you by grace, why do you seek after a second blessing? It's the same truth that Peter taught when he said uh, he has his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, through our knowledge of Him. You remember they were saying, through a second experience, you can get a special knowledge, but He has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And where did all these benefits come from? They came to us by grace that God equips His church in order that they might live for Him in a pagan world. Uh, look at verse 6, even as our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you so that you were not lacking in any gift. Now, he doesn't mean that every single Christian in, in the church had 
the whole plethora of gifts deposited with them. He meant collectively, as a church, they had every gift that they needed to serve Christ in Corinth. That they didn't lag, as one uh, translator puts it, they didn't lag behind any other church. Every gift was uh, given to them so that they might function sufficiently and adequately in that cesspool of Corinth. Now, you know that God has given you a gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, that you have a gift. You have a gift of the Spirit. And that gift is not given to you. It's given to the church through you. That gift is for the the benefit of the church. It's not for a personal benefit to make you feel better about yourself. It's, it's a gift given to you collectively to the church. And if you fail to use that gift, it's the church itself that is impoverished, not only yourself. And those gifts are given by God in grace. He doesn't give them because He approves of the Uh, individual and thinks they are sufficiently spiritual enough to receive this grace. The word for gift is charis uh, mata. Uh, Charis is the Greek word for grace, that these gifts themselves are are given uh, in grace. And if, if you don't use the gift that God has given you for the benefit of the church, it's the church itself that suffers. So, there's an Arab story told of a a king who uh, invited everyone to a huge banquet and uh, on the condition that they brought a flask of wine with them uh, uh, to the banquet. And all the flasks of wine then were poured into a, a, a large receptacle, and then everybody would benefit from that mixture of wine. And there was a man who was invited, and he thought to himself, well, you know, I'll, I'll just slip in some water there, and nobody will know the difference by the time it's diluted with the rest of the wine. And so when it came to draw the wine, they, disco- they discovered that, that it was all pure water, that everybody had the same thought as him. I imagine if everybody was just like you, would there be a church? Would there be a BB? Would there be a GB? Would there be a Sunday school? God has given you a gift. He has given uh, you a gift in grace to be used for the benefit of the church. So, He has given us everything we need in terms of of word and knowledge. He has given this uh, spectrum of gifts to the church that the church might function effectively in the world. But notice there too, these are all traceable, remember, to to grace. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end. That He actually gives grace to enable us to persevere and to go on with God and uh, to overcome the trials and difficulties that we experience living as pilgrims in a fallen world. You remember Paul's thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed that God would take it away. Do you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? Three times he prayed that God would take it away, and God said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. That there's not only grace to save us, but there's grace to sustain us. There's grace to strengthen us. There's grace to fortify our hearts and to pour energy uh, into our minds and uh, equip us then to, to live and serve uh, him 
in this world. And, and Paul is simply making the, the point that all these blessings, all these benefits come to us through the grace of God. So there is saving grace, but there is also this e equipping grace. The trouble is, of course, that uh, as Christians, we don't always draw on that grace and use the resources that God has provided for us. I was reading in the paper recently about a teacher who retired from a public school in England, and uh, he uh, had nowhere to retire to, so the headmaster consented to him uh, living in, in the caretaker's cottage, and uh, the school paid the electricity bill for him. Uh, he was very disheveled. They noticed that he was uh, eating tin cat food in order to sustain himself, and so the headmaster, feeling sorry for him, invited him to eat with his family three or four nights in the week. And then he died, and they discovered that he had 30 million pounds in investments, that he had this great resource, but he never drew on that resource in order to live uh, his life in a way that, uh, that was fitting for a, a retired school teacher. He never drew on the resources. And so many Christians live their lives like that. They live their lives in, in spiritual poverty. When God has deposited this great resource of grace, all the word and knowledge, uh, the, the gifting, and the strength to live for Him, but they don't draw on those resources. So grace then deals with her past, equips us with, uh, uh, in the present, and then gives us confidence about the future. Look at what He says there in verse 8. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace not only provides past and present benefits, but future benefits too. God has saved us by His grace, and He presently empowers us by that grace, but ultimately He will present us to Himself. The ESV says guiltless. The NIV says blameless. We are grateful for past grace. We seek to use present grace, but ultimately we're looking forward to future grace. We have a work to do here on earth. We have gifts to employ, but we watch and we long for that great day when we will be presented to Him faultless or guiltless. That word literally means free, free of accusation certain generation who were brought up in happy days. And, uh, you know, the fawns used to come into the mirror, and he used to, you know, take out his comb to comb his hair, and then he'd put the comb away because he was perfect. He, he didn't, there wasn't a hair out of place. Well, when I look in the mirror now, I see all the wrinkles, all the blemishes. I see the hair, uh, if I turn around, the ball patch at the back, uh, far from perfect. But one day, one day, he's going to present me to his father as a bride beautifully dressed for the bridegroom. Our foster son's getting married tomorrow. We had the rehearsal on Friday night. They turned up disheveled in jeans and all for the rehearsal. But it's going to be completely different on that day tomorrow. Completely different. And we're going to be presented before his throne spotless, spotless. 
And here we are, and we wrestle with our shortcomings, and we wrestle with our uh, deficiencies, and we wrestle with our temptations and our yielding to them. But one day, one day, we're going to be presented to His throne spotless, without fault, guiltless, guiltless. Do you ever feel guilty? On that day, we're going to be presented guiltless, free from all accusations. What a glory that's going to be. So there is grace to save us, grace to equip us, and grace to present us as Christians faultless before His sight. Do we deserve any of this? A resounding no. But then we come not pleading our merits or our suitability. We come pleading His grace. So the grace of God deals with our past. The grace of God equips us in the present, and the grace of God uh, gives us confidence for the future. The grace received. second thing I want you to notice is the confidence uh, displayed. In these verses, Paul displays a remarkable degree of confidence about the spiritual standing of the Corinthians. Now, remember these Corinthians were far from perfect. They were contaminated, confused, and corrupted both morally and spiritually by their environment. They had come to faith in Corinth, but unfortunately their environment had not only affected them, it had infected them. Paul opens chapter 3 with the words, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ Jesus. Our grandchildren graduated there recently. In case you think I'm older than I am, they graduated from play school. And they had robes and they had a hat and all. And they graduated from play school to nursery school. And then I suppose they'll graduate from nursery school and to primary school and then from primary school into secondary school and from secondary school ultimately to, hopefully, uh, maybe, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but, but to, to university and they'll graduate. But, but these Corinthians never got out of the play school. They never graduated from the play school. They were still babes in arms. They were still in the crash. And as I said last week, not, their problem was not only that they were in Corinth, but Corinth uh, was in them. Uh, but in these verses, Paul is confident in spite of their, their deficiencies, Paul was confident of the genuine nature of their faith. Now, why did he display such confidence? Well, three things. First of all, I think the response to him. Notice again what he says there in verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, that word confirm means to establish, means to make sure, means to uh, make firm. It was used in the business world of, uh, of contracts that were drawn up, signed, and sealed. It's uh, what one commentator calls a dynamic Aorist. It's something that's happened in the past suddenly, but definitely. Now, I says, Paul, our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. What we said and taught when we came to Corinth had an effect upon you in the way that you responded to the gospel. It gave us confidence about the genuineness of your faith. Paul's thinking of his arrival in Corinth, and he says, when we began to preach, something happened in you that convinced us 
that you were genuine, that you were real, that you were the real McCoy. And in the repentance and faith that they exercised, there was something that he could see. Because repentance and faith is our response to the grace of God. The grace of God breaks into our life. The evidence that that grace has come is that we repent and we believe the gospel. Repentance. There was something about their response in terms of repentance that convinced Paul that they were truly converted. Were they like that 3,000 on the day of Pentecost who were cut to the heart? Were they like the prophet Isaiah when they stood in the infinite holiness of God and beheld His glory uh, and cried, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When they were overwhelmed with their sin, did they cry out with, with the Philippian jailer, What must I do to be saved? There was something in their response that convinced Paul of the genuineness of that response. Over the, Christ, uh, the years, I've seen people come to faith in Christ. Not many. I would love for a lot more, but I've seen people come to faith in Christ. And I can always tell, you might think this is a bit subjective, I'm, I can always tell who's genuine. You can always tell it. Because if there's, there's no smarting under sin, very rarely is there true salvation. Some of you listen to that Sinclair Ferguson podcast that comes out every week, and he talked about the seed that, you know, fell on, on the rocky ground that sprung up, and then uh, uh, when the sun came out, it immediately died away. And it says uh, of those people that they received it with joy. They received it with joy. And he says, there's the, the problem. They received it with joy, but not with sorrow. There was no brokenness. There was no kind of awareness of the sinfulness of their own heart. There was no uh, tears of, uh, of the penitent. There was no uh, broken and contrite heart. And that's always the mark of true repentance. And then, and then faith. And faith is not just believing in God. It's not, the question that we ask, should ask is not do you believe in God? That's not the question we should ask because the devils believe in God. The question that we should ask is this, do you believe God? Not do you believe in God, but do you believe God? Do you believe God that when He says that if you come to Him, He will in no wise uh, turn away from you or turn you away from Him, that, that, uh, that though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow, that He will justify you and cleanse you? Do you believe the promise of God? And you see, genuine faith always, always manifests itself in repentance and faith. So what convinced Paul? Did he, see, did he see that repentance? Did he see that faith? Do you have that repentance? Do you have that faith? Do you know what it is to mourn over your sin and then to look to Jesus and just have this, this wonderful sense of fresh forgiveness that His blood has paid for your sin and it's cleansed you from every dark, dark spot. So he was convinced of the reality of their saving faith, their profession, because of their response to God. Secondly, by their longing for Christ. Look at what he says there in verse 7. 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus promised his disciples as they saw him go, so he would come back again, that he would come back visibly. The first time he came into this world, he came uh, incognito. His glory was veiled. Nobody could see or appreciate his true identity unless that was revealed to him. But when he comes again, he will come with all the trappings of divinity and glory and royalty, and his coming will be like lightning, says Luke, that lights up one end of the sky to the other, and every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him, even those that pierced him. And Paul says, as far as the Corinthians were concerned, they were not just waiting, but as the NIV says, they were eagerly waiting. It's the word waiting with a, a, an intensifier um, a word attached to it. They were eagerly waiting, assiduously waiting, one commentator translates it, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a longing in their hearts for Him. Not in the way that you would sit in a doctor's surgery or in a dentist's um, uh, waiting room, just waiting passively, but a, an eager uh, um, um, anticipation and looking forward to the coming of Christ. Now, that longing for Christ's return is a mark of saving faith. John Trapp, the Puritan, said, pinned like a badge to the sleeve of every believer is that he looks and longs for the uh, second coming of Christ. This is his identifying mark. He longs for the second coming of Christ. Just as uh, the Jews were identified during Nazi occupation by the yellow star attached to their sleeves, so, so the Christian is identified by his longing for Christ's return. He's not absorbed with the here and now. He's looking for the there and then. He's not laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust eat, uh, uh, eat away and thieves break in and steal. He's laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not eat and where thieves do not break in and steal. I was hearing this week about a bumper sticker that's popular in America, and it says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Hypothetic to assess your life only in terms of the things that you accumulate for pleasure in this world. He who dies with the most toys wins and then goes to hell. Do you long for the coming of Christ? Is your heart set on the coming of Christ? I'm told that a horse actually has a double retina, and it can focus upon the grass that it eats, but it can also look into the distance and see someone approaching. Well, that's the Christian. He is to get on with life in this world, but he is to look and eagerly expect the coming of Christ. So Paul's confidence in why, why this, this pathetic church full of immature people, full of babies in Christ, why was he convinced of the genuineness of their faith? because of their response to the gospel, because of their longing for Christ, and lastly, for, because of the character of God. Look at verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called. 
He will keep you strong to the end, says the NIV. That, that ultimately our confidence and our assurance is not based in ourselves and our response to God's grace. It's based in God's grace and His faithfulness to His grace. Sometimes you hear people say, well, if I became a Christian, I could never keep it. I could never live up to it. That's, that's wrong because God keeps you. God is faithful. You were called into fellowship with His Son, and God will not reverse that calling. He will not reverse that decree. He is faithful. He will not abandon you. He will not desert you. He will not forsake you. He who called you is faithful. And that's our great comfort, that those who God genuinely calls, He keeps and keeps forever. I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified saints up in heaven. Philip Hewitt is happier in heaven. But he's not more secure in heaven. In the pastoral team this week, we were looking at that word deposit that he has given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit who guarantees our inheritance. And, um, and the uh, old versions, the authorized version, translates it as he has given us the Holy Spirit as an earnest that guarantees our inheritance. And I was just making the point, and a fisherman from the west coast of Scotland told me this, that a deposit is a one-way guarantee. So you go into a shop and you put a deposit upon an item. Uh, he promises, the shopkeeper promises that he will keep that item for you. But an earnest is, is a two-way transaction. So when fishermen were going out to fish, the merchant would give an earnest that guaranteed that he would take the catch and guaranteed that the fisherman would sell him the catch exclusively. It was, it was a, a, a two-way transaction. And we have been given the earnest of the Spirit who guarantees our inheritance. And all of that is from grace. That's why Paul was confident of their self. In spite of their weakness, in spite of their immaturity, in spite of their fights and their quarreling, in spite of the toleration of immorality within the church, he was confident of them because of how they responded to the gospel, because of their longing for Christ, and because of the character of God. God is faithful, and God doesn't break His promises. Last thing, very quickly, the response expected. What should our response be as Christians to this grace? Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always. I give thanks to my God always. Paul doesn't thank the Corinthians, but he thanks the giver of the grace, the source of the grace. He thanks God himself. Is that not our response this morning? Should that not be our response this morning? Pause, my soul, adore and wonder. Ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace has put me in the number of the Savior's family. Hallelujah! 
Hallelujah. Eternal thanks. Thanks to thee. Grace. Grace has put me in the family. That's our response. Just to bow before him, to worship him, and thank him for his grace. Amen.